right. Hey, give the Lord a hand this morning. All right. I know several of you are new to Revolution Church, and uh, we like to study books of the Bible and study it the way it's written and go through it verse by verse. And right now we're in the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in chapter 42, and our scripture reader today is Amanda. So Amanda, would you read God's word for us? Sure. Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we are your servants. We, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested." whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Right. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when, we begged, when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. 
then he turned away from them. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> I have one job and I'm not doing very good at it. <laughs> and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. This, uh, this would make a great movie. This story, if you were following along carefully, this gets pretty dicey and it's pretty intense, especially when you know all that's happened prior to this. So let me just back up for those who weren't here recently or don't know, weren't familiar with this story. So Joseph is um, one of the, towards the youngest of his sons, but he's his dad's favorite. And we all know that having favorites amongst your kids is not a good thing, right? Unless you have one child, then it's pretty easy. And if you don't have, a, if you have only one child and you don't have a favorite, then you have another problem. But anyway, Joseph is the favorite, and all the brothers are jealous, okay? And then, to add insult to injury, dad gives Joseph this coat of many colors and shows him that he's the favorite son, but this coat more, means more than just fashion. It means that you're going to be the one that's in charge of all of them. You're going to be the one who inherits more than them. Usually that went to who? The eldest son. But he skips the oldest ones all the way down the line and comes this young one because he's the favorite son because it was of the favorite wife because he had multiple wives, which was a bad thing. And this family has so much drama. They have more baggage than the hobby airport. This is a really bad situation here. And so the brothers cannot stand. The Bible says that they hate him. And so the dad says, hey, Joseph, why don't you go out and check and see how your brothers are working out and go out there and supervise them. And so he starts walking out in the field. They see him coming in his flashy new uh, designer jacket here. And they're like, man, I hate that guy. And like, yeah, let's kill him. Like, seriously, let's kill him. And so they plot to kill him. And uh, Reuben speaks up and says, no, no, let's not kill him. You know, he's our brother. Maybe we should just throw him in a pit. And Judah says, why don't, yeah, why don't we just sell him as a slave? We can make some money off it. Because if we kill him, we're not going to make any money. And so they, he gets sold into slavery. The Potiphar is the guy who buys him. He's working in his house. He is such a model servant that he ends up being in charge of everything for this guy who is the head of security for all of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet. And so he's in charge of all this. Well, Potiphar's wife has an eye for Joseph, and she keeps trying to seduce him. Like I said, this would make a great movie. And so he keeps refusing, refusing. So one day she tells all the male servants to get out of the house so she can trap Joseph by herself. He resists. He leaves his robe behind. When husband comes home, she shows the robe and says, hey, he tried to rape me. You, your Hebrew servant tried to embarrass me in front of everybody. Well, does Potiphar believe it? No, because execution would have been the penalty, but he just puts him in jail. Well, instead of having a bad attitude and being grumpy about the deck of cards God has dealt him, he just works like he normally does, works his way to the top, where he basically, he becomes the warden of the jail. And so he's in charge of everything. And then two of Pharaoh's cabinet members get accused of some type of conspiracy and they get thrown in jail. And then one night they both have a dream and they are really distraught and Joseph comes in to serve them and says, hey, why are you guys so down? They're like, well, we both had this dream, but we don't know what it means. He said, well, tell it to me. Because he's like, I'm kind of connected to God, so I'll tell you what it means. And so he interprets both their dreams. One of them gets hung And the other one gets forgiven of whatever crime it was and gets restored. He tells the guy who is going to get off the hook, like literally, he says that, hey, just remember me, okay? Just when you get to Pharaoh and everything gets good with you and your family, remember me. Put in a good word for me for Pharaoh because I didn't do anything to be here. I was kidnapped, sold into slavery, and now falsely accused of a crime. 
You know, I did you a solid, why don't you do me a favor back, okay? And so does the guy remember? No, he forgets for two years. And then Pharaoh has a dream, as we learned last week. He has two dreams that mean the same thing. And that's when the guy's like, oh, yeah, there was this guy in jail that interpreted our dreams, and maybe he can help you. So he comes before Pharaoh. He tells him about the dreams, how there's going to be seven years of men. We're going to have a bumper crop. Everything's going to be amazing for seven years, but then seven bad years of worldwide famine. Like literally, archaeologists have confirmed that there was a regional all over the whole Middle East and even northern Africa, a famine that happened about this time. So the Bible's confirmed through history and archaeology. So Joseph interprets this dream. Pharaoh goes, man, you are smart. What should I do about this? He said, well, you need to get somebody and put him in charge of saving 20% of all the grain. Somehow he'd done the math already. Save 20% of the grain, basically double the tax, put it all in silos and all the different regions, and then when the seven bad years come, we'll have plenty of food. <clears throat> and so Pharaoh's like, why don't you be that guy? And so he, gets, he goes from basically, literally from the dungeon to being prime minister of the most powerful empire on the planet. So you talk about an overnight success story. So what's funny about this story is Joseph is put in a situation where he could say the classic phrase that your sister tells you, I told you so, right? And this is what, we enjoy saying this phrase because we know when we're right. And we, especially if we told the person not to do it and they do it anyway and everything falls apart and then we want to say, I told you so. So you're going to see that several times in this passage where people could have said that, especially Joseph, and Reuben basically does say it. We're going to divide chapter 42 up into five categories. I kind of had a little fun with the titles here. There's grocery shopping in Egypt. There's taking the PSAT. The PSAT is the, um, uh, it is the potential spy analysis test. Okay? And then number three, honesty is the best policy, and lo the long journey home, and then finally it's all about the Benjamin. So, chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned, now Jacob's 100 year, 180 years old. He's not doing much but eating in his tent, okay? How did he learn about this? And he's probably learning something that his brothers already knew, but if the information finally gets to him that there's, in the midst of this famine, which they're now one year in, uh, there's grain that's for sale in Egypt. Evidently, he's thinking, well, how did Egypt end up with no famine, well, he doesn't know the story yet. And he says to his sons, why are you just standing around here looking at each other? Why don't you go do something about this, you know? Because they're all in their 40s by now, okay? 40s and early 50s, if you do the math on the brothers. But there's a reason they don't want to go to Egypt. Why is that? They know their brother's down there, a slave, and this whole thing reminds them of their guilt and that, that all the things that they caused. And he's like, man, why, why are you standing around here looking? Why don't you do something about this? He said, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. And of course, that triggers their like, Feelings like, oh man, Egypt, Joseph, man, we're going to get in trouble. You know, what if we see him or whatever? Who knows what they're thinking? So I want you to go down. And of course, whenever you go to Egypt, it's not just south, but it's down in elevation. And in the Bible, it's down spiritually. It, almost every time someone goes to Egypt, it's a picture of going into the world and running away from God, leaving the promised land. And he said, buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. And so... Um, Again, a year has passed, and they're all very exhausted, and whatever resources they have, okay? And so it's interesting. Here's Jacob. Jacob's name means heel gripper or the one who trips people, okay? He is a, the master manipulator, right? Isn't that how he got the birthright? Isn't that how he, he, he uh, got the blessing? 
He's used to manipulate. He, he manipulated Laban. He manipulated the, the, the sheep and the herd and things like that. He's a constant manipulator, but here he is, and he can't manipulate anything. He's old. There's a famine. He's totally helpless. And I kind of sense, if you read into these words, he's really frustrated because he's used to being the one that just intimidates people and does what he wants to do, lies when he wants to lie, but now he's pretty helpless. So 10 of Joseph's brothers, again, Joseph, there's 12, but Benjamin's not going to go. Joseph's already there. So the other 10, they go down to buy grain. What's really interesting is the number 10 in the Bible. Now you can overdo numerology in the Bible and become super superstitious to it, but you can't ignore it either. There's so many things where God is trying to say to us, if you'll read between the lines, what the numbers mean, and that it's just not a coincidence. Um, the word 10 in the, the, the number 10 in the Bible means completely or completeness, especially in regards to authority and control. So think about that authority and control and the number 10. What's interesting, in other some ancient civilizations, 12 means that, okay? Like a dozen. And we, you know, we fall on that. Uh, but in, in mathematically, especially in the decimal sim, sim, system, 10 is obviously the perfect number. In Genesis 1, how many times does God say, and God said, let there be light, and God said this, he did it 10 times. What is he trying to say there? That I have authority over all of creation. And then also we see from Adam to Noah, from creation to the flood, there's 10 generations, and all of those generations disobey God. And they become wicked, more wicked, off the charts wicked, desperately wicked, and God says, you know what, I've had enough of these people. I'm going to flood the planet and start over, and I'm going to save out Noah. So God is showing here that God has authority over man, but man can't handle the authority. A tithe is 10%. We're commanded to give 10% of our income back to God and to good causes and things like that, to help the poor, to help the widows and all that stuff like that. And what we're saying is, when we tithe, we're saying, God, you have control and you have authority over my finances. In Sodom, God says, if I could find how many righteous men, I won't destroy it? Ten. If there could be ten leaders in that city, you could turn it around. But he didn't find that many. How many commandments are there? The basic ten. How many spies went into Jericho, or, uh, into the promised land, with an evil report? There was twelve spies sent in, but ten tried to usurp the authority of God and say, no, no, we can't win this war. We can't do it. And then... Um, it's interesting, in 2 Kings, Elijah's asking the king, what miracle do you want me to perform? He says, make the sun go backwards. He's all right. You want me to make it go forward or backwards? Well, anybody can make it go forward. Like, how's that possible? But anyway, he said, why don't you make it go backwards? He said, sure. And God performed that miracle, showing that God has authority over even the sun and the solar system. And then Boaz, when he wanted to marry Ruth, he went to the city, sought out 10 elders, so I need the proper authority to be able to marry this woman and because there's another kinsman redeemer, and so he's passed on it, so give me the authority to marry her. How many plagues did God perform on Egypt? 10, right? On 10 of their main gods, showing that he had authority over their gods and over the land. In the temple, there's 10 labors, 10 lampstands, 10 tables. Man, it's just all over. And, and I, this isn't even a complete list. I'm still going here, Okay. Uh, on the 10th day of the first month, every year, they chose a Passover lamb, showing that God had authority over to forgive sins. Jesus taught several parables involved the number 10. 10 virgins, uh, 10 talents, 
And uh, of course, when Jesus heals lepers, how many has he healed? Ten lepers, showing he has authority over disease. Um, there's ten, this is the one that's most fascinating I learned this week. So when Jesus ascended, where did he ascend to? His throne. And what did he say? All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and, and make disciples. So he gave the great commission. And then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came down and gave the church power to exercise his authority. So you see this number 10, meaning authority, all over the Bible. It's interesting that God created us with how many fingers and how many toes, showing that he has authority over everything we do and everywhere we go. I mean, this symbolism is off the charts. And again, I could continue with the list, but I won't for time's sake. But Jacob says, I'm not sending Benjamin. Benjamin is now his new favorite. The favorite one is he thinks is dead and gone. So this other favorite, because he has the same mom, Rachel, that's why he's the other favorite now. He's Joseph's brothers. He's not going to send him with the brothers, for he feared that harm may come to him. He's like, hey, I've already lost one son. You said that a wild animal killed him. You brought me back his coat of many colors that I cherished when I gave them. Now you brought it back with blood all over it. Of course, all that was what? It was a lie. They deceived him. They had sold him. But he doesn't know that. And he doesn't want the same thing to happen to Benjamin. He doesn't trust these brothers at all. <clears throat> and so thus the sons of Israel, Israel is Jacob's new name. Sometimes he's called Israel. Sometimes he's called Jacob, depending on how he's behaving, right? And it says, he came to buy among the others who came. So other people from other parts of the world are also coming. So you can imagine that there's lines of people here to buy grain. So in these in this year of famine, Egypt not only has enough food to feed all their people in this very large country, they've got more than enough to sell. So they've turned what is poverty for the rest of the world into profit for themselves. And so the, the famine wasn't just in Egypt, it's in the land of Canaan, which is hundreds of miles to, it's, it's the hundred miles to the, directly to the north, it touches there. And keep in mind this, that the Canaanites and the Egyptians didn't get along. Now, Jacob and his people are just nomads passing through Canaan. They're not Canaanites. But they're going to get confused with Canaanites because they're, they're the enemy. Um, so let's move to the next point here. There's the taking the PSAT, the potential spy analysis test. Joseph knows who they are, but he's going to test them. And you read this passage, and, and as I've read in the past, I, I read this thing, man, Joseph's being kind of rude. No, he's doing this for their, for their good, and you'll see why here in a second. Now, Joseph is the governor over the land, the prime minister. He's the second in command. Pharaoh said, you can be in charge of everything except for the palace. And I'm in charge of that. You're in charge of everything else. And so he was the one that sold to all the people of the land. So he's overseeing this. He's not personally handing out the grain. He's overseeing this massive nationwide grain distribution operation. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him and with their faces to the ground. Does that sound familiar? Here's the dream coming true. You see, when he was a little kid, he told his brothers, hey, I had this dream. I dreamed that like all the stars bowed down to me, even the sun and the moon. And, uh, and they're like, what? You think we're, you're going to reign over us someday? Man, you're, you, you got nothing coming. And of course, they had the other dream where they were out in the field working and they were building up stalks of grain. He said, and my stalk of grain stood up and all your stalks of grain bowed down to mine. It's interesting, the fulfillment there. Stalks of what? Grain, wheat, whatever, corn, we don't know exactly which, but that's what they're here to buy. 
And what are they having to do to buy this grain so they can live? They're having to bow down to him. Do you see the dream being fulfilled? And so behold, we are binding sheaves. This is the dream. Chapter back five chapters. We're binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And they mocked at that, they balked, they balked at it. They should have seen that God's the one giving the dreams. And if this is what God wants, then who are we? But no, their pride, their ego was in the way. <clears throat> and that what they said when he had that dream, are you, you, stupid little Joseph, you're going to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And here's where Joseph could have said, I told you so. <laughs> but he doesn't do it. He doesn't play that game. And we need to be careful about that doing too. Especially those of you who are married. I'm sure there's so many times you could bite your tongue where you could have said, I told you so. But you don't. You need to be gracious. Joseph's showing that. So Joseph, he saw his brothers. And this word here means he, he, he recognized them. And the second word, recognize, means it's at a deeper level where he's analyzing them. Okay? So you know, you see, oh, there's my brothers. And now he's studying like, oh, wow, there's Reuben. There's Judah. Oh, that's Simeon. Wow, these guys are older, but I'm recognizing these guys. And he's studying, he's watching their behavior. But he treated them like he didn't know them. Okay? He, he speaks fluent Hebrew. He grew up that. But now he speaks uh, either Coptic or, or Arabic or Egyptian, and maybe all of them. And he, but he's going to act like he doesn't speak any Hebrew. And, so, and he's going to talk to them through a translator, and he's going to be really gruff with them. He's going to be really, like the passage here says, he speaks roughly to them. And he's doing it for a reason. I believe it's a good reason. He said, where did you come from? And they said, and Amanda did a good job reading it with inflection. That was great. And they said, like, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, what's interesting is when Joseph said where he was from, he said he was from the land of the Hebrews. Even though it didn't belong to the Hebrews, he was claiming God's promise that someday it would be. But the brothers, do they claim God's promise? No, they're blending into the wicked culture, and they're saying, we're from the land of Canaan. And you know, red flag here, <laughs> you, you're coming from enemy, enemy territory, you're coming to me, you're probably going to be spies. And so, verse 8 says, and Joseph recognized him, this word means not, is the one that means scrutinized his brothers, but they did not recognize him or scrutinize him. So he's analyzing them, not looking carefully, but they, because of this Eastern culture, they're not making eye contact, because that's rude in that culture. They're looking down, they're, they're being reverent to him, but he's able to look at them and watch them very, very carefully. So Joseph remembered the dreams that he had. That wasn't a remember like, oh, that's right, I had these dreams. <laughs> How could he forget? It's like he's recalling the dreams. He's thinking about the details. Like, wait a minute, sheeps, grain, they're here to buy grain. Oh, wow. You know, light bulb moment. He's seeing how God is fulfilling all of this and how God's prophecies always come true. <clears throat> and... And this word end here is like there's a connection. Like, dreams, you're spies. He's thinking, in his heart, he's thinking, I told you so. But he's like, if you guys are the same guys who threw me in the pit back then, how am I going to know that you're any different? I'm going to need to test you. So here's what I'm going to do. is I'm going to treat you rough. I'm going to just see, are you guys still cocky and proud? Or are you really, are you, have you really had a change of heart? He said, You're, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. The word nakedness means the vulnerabilities. Like if you were going to conquer this land, as the, the Hisox had done, then you're going to find breaches in the wall. 
where there's the least amount of military, where they're distracted or whatever, who's vulnerable, who we can make inside deals with. The nakedness of the land means the vulnerability of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants, and now here they're saying, they're being humble, your servants, when they said in the dream, we're going to bow down and serve you? No, your servants, now they're admitting it, have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men, okay? <clears throat> so they're, look at the, 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 uh, the humility they're starting to show here. Your servants have never been spies. Wait a minute, what is a, what is a spy? Someone who pretends to be someone that they're not in order to do evil secretly. Isn't that what they've been doing for the last couple of decades? They, they've been lying about their brother. Oh yeah, their brother's dead. Yeah, they've been, they've been pretending to be one thing to their father or another. But they, they actually have been spies for a long time in a different sense of the word. And he said, no, it, it is. It, it's exactly like I said. It's the nakedness of the land that, that, that you've come to see. You, you guys definitely are spies. And they said, no, we, your servants, we're 12 brothers. In other words, we're not Canaanites. We're a clan of nomads. We, each one of us have wives and children and people under us. We represent several thousand people, okay, and to sons of men in the land of Canaan. So we're, we're, we're just passing through in the land of Canaan. We're not of the land of Canaan. We're just in it, okay? And behold, the youngest, who's, that, who's the youngest? Benjamin. He's this day, he's with our father, he stayed home, and the one is no more. Just interesting phrase there, and who's the one? They're talking to the one, but they say, you know, he doesn't exist anymore. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. So he's going to be persistent about this and make them think they're in trouble. And by this you shall be tested. This is all a test. This is a really great way to do this. He wants to know what really is in their heart, and if their heart is not where it should be, this test will get them there, okay? And God is using uh, Joseph to help them come to full repentance of what they've done. You see, they, they feel bad about Joseph being gone and all the grief it's caused their dad, thinking he's dead, but they really haven't truly repented yet. And Joseph's going to test them to get them through the pro that process. He says, you're not leaving this place until your youngest brother, Benjamin, comes here. You guys are all under arrest. You can see them probably being, the soldiers grabbing them. And you guys, you guys aren't going anywhere until that youngest brother comes home. So this, this is an amazing test. Um, years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I used to run several camps during the summer. And, and we had a lot of fun. The rules weren't too strict, but we did have some rules that you, you can't break these rules, okay? You can't leave campus for your own safety, and you don't skip chapel. That's the reason we're here. You know, we're here to have fun, but we're here to hear the word of God. And so don't skip chapel. Well, once, it was a pretty big camp. We had about 180 kids. So some, there was about five of them that thought, if we skip, nobody will notice. Well, and we probably wouldn't have noticed that one of my counselors saw them running between buildings. You know, they said they went out to go use the bathroom. They saw them. They thought they were sneaking around, and they went all kind of ran between buildings. And so <clears throat> I called them all into the lobby, and I said, uh, you guys know the rules. And I said that if you break one of these big rules, you go home. So I said, go pack your bags. And some were like, fine, you know, like, you know, stubborn attitude. But one kid, uh, Bubba Farmer, his real name was Glenn, and uh, Bubba Farmer, he instantly starts to cry. He's, oh, no, Brother Gary, please, please don't send me home. Please don't make me go home. And I said, I said Bubba, go pack your bags. He said, if you dad, my dad will kill me, please don't make me go home. And I started feeling bad for him. I started caving in because I'm, I'm a soft touch on this. And so... 
I'm like, Bubba, just pack your bags. He's like, no, no, no. I said, but Bubba, read my lips. Just pack your bags. He's like, just pack my bags? I'm like, your punishment is to pack your bags. That was all I did. I just had the kids all pack their bags, bring them all downstairs, then gave them a good talking to us, and I'll go put your bags back, and you get to stay. So I thought, well, maybe, so I was testing them to see if they would repent. A couple of them kept bad attitudes, and they got better as the week went on, but some of them instantly got it, and they were so thankful that they didn't have to go home. And that's kind of what Joseph is doing here. He's helping them through the process of repentance. <clears throat> and then he says, so here's what I want to do. I want nine of you to stay here and send one out to go back to bring back Benjamin. Now, later he's going to flip it. He's going to say, keep one, and nine of you go home, but you'll see that in a second. He said, so while you nine remain here, that your words may be tested. And so that's something that we need to learn from the lesson here is that our words will be tested. Not only while we're alive, but God will test our words someday. He will judge our words. In fact, Jesus said, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account or be put on test or on trial for every careless word they speak. How many of us, including me, have said things, oh, I didn't mean that. I shouldn't have said that. I was just kind of talking. And the Bible says we shouldn't be careless with our words because someday we're going to be judged by our words. Now, um, many of you are familiar with chiastic structures. Another thing that shows us the Bible is the Word of God. It's just how the patterns are there, and it's amazing. So a chiastic structure is a poetic way of like building a sandwich. So you see a sandwich here, and you've got bread and bread, mayonnaise, mayonnaise. If you're, mayonnaise if you're making a real sandwich, right? Cheese, roasted turkey, okay? You see how it results? Well, this is the way the Bible does things in some stories. So I know this may be small, but the story begins like with the bread that Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, and then it ends with he turns away from his brothers so they won't see him and recognize him while he's crying. And then it moves on to say that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him, and that they did not know, did not, uh, they did not know that Joseph understood them. So you see the brothers as the sandwich is working in, and then the next part here is they say we are honest men. And then towards the end of the story, they say we are honest men. And then he says you're spies. And then towards the end of the story, he repeats you're spies. And then he says, by this shall you be tested by the life of Pharaoh. It's kind of like saying, you know, on my, on my honor or swear to God, swear by the temple, whatever way of saying an oath, not all those are recommended. But that was just a phrase, by the life of Pharaoh, and he repeats it again. But what is it, the meat in the middle of the sandwich? Unless your youngest brother come here, bring your brother while you remain confined. So the whole point of this whole thing is, I want to see Joseph. I need you to bring Joseph. All this rest, of, all the thing about this, the life of Pharaoh, your spies, whether you're honest or not, I'm doing all this because I want to see Benjamin. I want to see how you're treating him. Because if you're treating him the way you treated me, then there's been no change. But if you've learned your lesson, now you're treating Benjamin better than you treated me, then maybe we'll see what the truth is. And so this is the center of this, the point of what we're trying to make in this next passage. So whether there is truth in you or not, he didn't just say whether you're telling the truth, he said whether truth is in you. What did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we like lie as a reaction, and we're like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. There's something brewing in our heart that made it just come out so quickly. Um, the things we say when we hit our thumb or when we're mad, those are all indicators of what's really going on in our heart. Is truth in our hearts? David wrote in Psalm 51, Behold, you delight in what? Truth in the inward being. 
And of course, the only way we can have truth in their being is, is to put it in there because our hearts don't naturally have it. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are naturally wicked and deceitful. Okay? We're just, you know, two-year-olds, nobody has to teach them how to lie. They will do it on their own. Okay? I mean, you've seen little kids and you say, what's behind your back? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> you know? Nobody had to teach them this behind-the-back trick. I remember one time my son Lance, I, he was doing this. I said, what's behind your back? He goes, nothing. I said, let me see your hand. And he goes, I'm like, I'm not that dumb. I wasn't born yesterday. I think he was like three and a half years old when he do this. But we, we naturally don't have truth. We need to take the word of God and that truth and put it in our hearts, hide his word in our hearts that we might not sin against God. And he says, put truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's see. Um, but our culture says, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's what they're teaching in colleges today, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. You have your truth, and I have mine, whatever. And, there's no thing. and I want to say to them, well, that statement you just made, is, is that statement absolutely true? I mean, is your statement absolutely true? What if, if your statement's absolutely true, then I guess there is somewhere absolute truth. And then other people say, well, everyone should discover their own truth. That's what Oprah says all the time. Discover your own truth. You know, hey, well, that might be right for you, but it's not right for me, you know, or hey, that's fine. You, know, you do you, and I'll do me, all that stuff. And as if, as if it's all subjective. You know, hey, you think 2 plus 2 is 27 and a half? That's cool. That's fine. Who am I to judge? You know, God forbid anybody judge anybody, you know, but we do it all the time. And especially if you make statements like absolute truth and you're judged as arrogant and, you know, and, you, and you're, you're malicious or whatever. You know, um, who is this guy here? He, he had his own truth. He really believed in his heart of hearts that what he was doing was cleansing the world of the lowest evolved people. He believed in evolution. He believed in Darwin's evolution that white people, especially blonde-haired, blue-eyed, which was ironic because he wasn't, but those people had evolved the most. And then white people with brown hair, brown eyes evolved there. And then, then Asians, then Hispanics, and then blacks, and then Jews. He believed Darwinianism, that, that, that these people had evolved the least. They need, the earth needed to be scourged them. He thought in his own truth that he could do this and he's killed six million people. Uh, Mao Zedong came in. He had his own truth. This is the way things will be. This is the new communist revolution. If you don't like it, we will shout you down. You can't. No, there's no. There's no public free speech. If you don't agree with us, we will shout you down. You won't give you a chance to speak. And he killed millions more than Hitler killed. And then Stalin. He killed 19 million of his own people. We talk about Hitler being the worst. These guys killed way, way more. Mao Zedong, we just learned about that. Um, actually, this is Pol Pot in Cambodia. Just last week, we learned uh, from Chenda how her family escaped from the killing fields in Cambodia. And Pol Pot, he had his truth. If you didn't agree with his truth, he, was, he, he just was going to kill you and wipe you out. And what's really interesting, Che Guevara killed thousands of people. He was a racist. He killed mostly black people. And yet young people today wear his shirt like he's a hero. And you know, what, what do all these people have in common? Well, number one, they were all socialists. Isn't it ironic that our, our, this generation wants to bring in socialism? Like, have you not learned from history? We've killed more people in the name of socialism in this last century than all of history combined. They'll say, well, Christians, they've killed lots of people. The Catholic Church killed people during the Crusades, and some of that was fighting back against Muslims, and both sides were wrong on that. But it doesn't even compare to what socialists have killed in this century. 
And what else they had in common is they all denied absolute truth. That you need to discover for you. And so if my truth says you need to die. And that's it. And so therefore, they're not, not paying any attention to the Bible. You know what's interesting is, I, I love history. and I'm not an expert on history by any means. But how there's so much history out there that people have no idea about. They have no, does anybody know who this guy is? This is King Leopold. You know how many Africans he killed? 20 million. And then millions more he cut off their hands to show them that I'm going to render you powerless. How many people have ever heard of Leopold? He was the king of Belgium. And he personally owned the Belgian Congo. And he, he was brutal. But you know why the world doesn't care about this? Because the people he killed were black. You know, you killed you know, Jews and white people in Germany. Oh, wow, that's a big deal. You know, if you kill Asians in China, that's a big deal. But even today, in the Sudan and Nigeria and Ethiopia, we've got Muslim, black Muslims killing black Christians, and nobody cares. When's the last time we sent troops over there? Man, we sent troops to Serbia, Croatia, to Ukraine. We send billions to Ukraine. Are we sending money to where blacks are being killed? And you say, it's just, it just the racism, in, even in the media, is, is just off the charts. Anyway, truth is that which per- corresponds to reality. That's what truth is. That's the definition of truth. Two plus two is four. I don't care what you think it is. You can say two plus two is yellow. I, you're wrong. Oh, don't judge me. I, no, you, you can say all day, well, I identify as a cat. You're not a cat. I'm not helping you by affirming that you're a cat. If a girl is an anorexic and she is starving herself to death because she looks in the mirror and she sees fat, are we all helping her by letting her have liposuction surgery? No. We need to say, hey, honey, you're not fat. In fact, you're dying. We need to get your mind to accept the truth that you are starving yourself. We're not helping anybody by letting them have their own truth. Truth is also, though, this is the most important part, is way more than a concept. Truth is a person. Jesus Christ is truth. This is what he said in John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, not just a way. Not all roads lead to heaven. I am the way. I am the what? Truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can have your own truth if you want to, but you need to have me because I am the truth. So back to our passage here taking the PSAT here, it says he put them all together in custody for how many days? Three days. That's all over the Bible. How many days was Jonah in the whale? Three days. How many days was Joseph in the tomb? Three days. You see it all over the Bible. So then we see to where the brothers will learn that honesty really is the best policy. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. You guys want to get out of jail? You want to survive? Here's what you need to do. First of all, I want to let you know that I fear God. That's got to be weird coming from an Egyptian. You fear God? I think he's just kind of taken off the veil a little bit, giving them a peek of who they might be talking to. He said, if you are honest men, let's flip it. Instead of one of you going, let's just do one of you stays. Okay? And where, you are, where you're in custody and let the rest go, the other nine go. And in fact, I'm going to give you some grain just to survive for a little bit. But if you want more, you're going to have to come back. And if you want this brother back, you're going to have to come back. And bring your youngest brother, which, what's his name? Benjamin, okay. Bring him to me so your words will be verified and you won't die. 
And he's not threatening to kill them. He knows that they'll starve to death because he's just given them just enough food to survive for a little bit. And then they said to one another, in truth, interesting phrase here, in truth, we are guilty. It finally hits home that, wow, we really messed up. We, and, they're, and they're not just talking about this situation. They're talking about what they did to Joseph 20 years earlier when they threw him in the pit concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of soul. We saw it. We saw him screaming. When we threw him down in this dry cistern, he was injured, he's bleeding, he's dehydrated, he's crying out, brothers, please get me out of here. And we saw him doing all that, going through all that, and he begged us, and we didn't listen. In fact, everybody remember, what did they go and do while he was in the pit? They ate lunch. (laughs) They're they're having a picnic while their brothers, that's how cold-hearted and callous, and and they realize that this is why this distress is coming. This is why he's putting us to test. It all goes back to what we did to our brother 20 years ago. And again, they don't even recognize him yet. And so Proverbs 28, 13, this is a verse we ought to take heart. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. God's going to make sure you're not going to get ahead. You want to keep hiding your secret sin, whatever it may be, me included. But if you confess it, and importantly, you forsake it, that's part of true repentance. We can say, I'm sorry all day long, but if we're not really going to change, no true repentance has taken place. This is two sides of the same coin. We have to admit it, and we have to be willing to forsake it. What happens when we do that? You obtain mercy. Mercy is when God gives you something you, when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. You deserve punishment. God says, you know what? I was going to have you pay for it all these ways, but I'm going to peel it back because you confessed it, and more importantly, you forsaked it. So James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your faults to who? one another. Not only do we confess our faults to God, we confess one another. This is where life groups come in, where we get in life groups and say, hey, man, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really having a temper with my wife. I'm really having a hard time at work. I'm being lazy, whatever. And you say, hey, let's pray for each other. Let's encourage each other. And you see each other next week. Say, hey, man, how are you doing with that problem we talked about? I am doing better. Thanks for the encouragement. And you text one another and say, hey, just want to let you know I'm praying for you today. And that kind of accountability is what we need. So Reuben answered them. Reuben, he says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? He's the one that spoke up back then, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So Reuben saying, I told you so. And they did not know that Joseph understood them. So the whole time they're arguing in Hebrew, they think that Joseph has no clue because he's having to wait for an interpreter and an He's probably saying, hey, don't tell him what we're about to say, or whatever it may be, but it's a little side quibble. But he can hear it, and he understands Hebrew, so he knows all of it. And then he turned away from them, and he wept. Joseph's going through a transition here, too. This could have been the time that he turned towards them and said, I'm going to kill you guys for what you did. But he's brokenhearted because they're brokenhearted. Their repentance caused sadness and sorrow in the, good, in the right way, of, in tears of joy even partially, when he wept here. And he returned to them, and he spoke to them, and he took Simeon, but he's going to stay with this rough appearance, okay? Even though he's trying to hide it, he's soft-hearted. He took him, he bound him right in front. They just saw him, whether it was chains or ropes or whatever they did, he tied him up right in front so they'd see that, hey, I'm serious, don't mess with me. You guys better come back, or this is the last time you see him. So they have a long journey home. A lot has happened. They're traveling back to tell dad all this stuff that's going on. They've got to now tell the truth about what happened to their brother. For 20 years, they, he thinks his son 
is dead. Okay, more than 20 years. Actually, 20, we're up to 20, 23 plus 1, 24 years now. Okay, and so Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, so they enough to get home. They pro, this wasn't enough to make it through all the famine, but this is enough to survive for a while. And the money that they gave to buy it, sneak it back into their bags. And his sacks to give them provisions. So, and then give them a little bit of food, some water, some other things to feed their donkeys and all that stuff on the way, and provisions for the journey. Help them get back. So Joseph goes overboard with all that he does here. And then they loaded their donkeys. And the word loaded here means like overflow their donkeys with grain. So he's given more than they deserve for sure. He's being very gracious to them. And then as one of them, it's interesting here, it doesn't name all the time it's saying Reuben said this, Judah said this, Joseph says this, but here it just says one of them. But don't know why. I think it's because pretty much it doesn't really matter, but the focus is on, it could have been any of them. They opened their sack to give their donkeys something, to, you know, some of the grain as they're stopping for a break and, and at the lodging place when they're stopping, he says, and he saw the money back in his sack. Now, he's not expecting this. They gave the money to him for the grain, they got bags of grain, but they didn't know that they had hid the, the money inside with the grain. And he said to his brothers, my money, it's back in my sack. Here it is. It's in the mouth of my sack. Right here as I open it up. It's right there in front. And that, man, their hearts failed them. That's like, you ever feel like your heart skips a beat? This is kind of like going through interna intercontinental airport. And they tell you, you know, like to pull, if you have a laptop in your bag, to pull it out, you know, and set it in this thing right here. And you open up your bag and you're like, there's three bags of cocaine. You're like, how did that get there? I didn't put that there. Oh my gosh. And you're like, security's that way, security's this way. I'm fixing to go to federal prison. I mean, this is what these guys are feeling at the moment right here. Their heart is sinking in this situation. And they turn, they're literally trembling. These grown men are shaking because they're so scared. Like, we are fixing to have another brother die. He's going to kill Simeon. Or dad's going to kill us. Or something's going to happen. And then they recognize, what is it that God has done to us? All the things that have happened to them so far, they haven't recognized God in any of it. And now they're like, wait a minute. This is, this is too coincidental that all this is happening. Boom, 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 boom. Hold on. God is up to something. And it's really good when we recognize that God is up to something. We're like, wait a minute. I lost a job again. And this is happening. And this is happening. Wait a minute. What's God trying to tell me here? You know? And, and it's interesting how God tries to get our attention. And we're just like, just, we just think just life is happening, but we don't realize that God is sovereign. He's in control of every little detail, and he's working it all out to get you to come to him. And so when they came to jo Jacob, their father, <clears throat> in the land of Canaan, they told him how much? All. Said, Dad, let, let's go back 24 years ago. Remember when we brought you that coat of many colors with the blood all over it? Well, here's the truth. <laughs> we threw him in a pit. You What? My favorite son, you threw him in a pit? Yeah, and then we sold him into slavery. What? You, he got sold into slavery? Well, we didn't do it, actually. Someone else pulled him out and sold him before we got to. What? I mean, it's just like one thing after another. And then they said, yeah, and when we went down to Egypt, we talked to the prime minister of Egypt, and it's, well, they don't know yet it's Joseph, right? So they, they told him all the details. So, they, but they definitely had to back up and tell him about what their, what their sin was in the past. So the man... The Lord of the land, who we know is Joseph, the prime minister, he spoke really rough to us, man. He was hard on us, Dad. And he told us we were spies. And we said, no, no, we're honest men, which 
is a lie. He goes, oh, you told me you're honest. You've been lying to me for how many years? And you're telling this guy you're honest. So I no wonder he didn't believe you. And he says, we're 12 brothers, and one is no more. The youngest, you know, is with a far father. And so we saw that they went grocery shopping in Egypt. They're going through the PSAT there. They're being tested. They decide to be honest with dad. They've, they've gone through this whole long journey home. And then our last point here, it's all about the Benjamin. It's all about the Benjamin. That's a song I don't recommend, by the way. But anyway, when the, when the man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this shall I know that you are honest men. Here's a test. And this is what he was telling us, to leave one of your brothers with us. What? Where's Simeon? Yeah, that's what we're trying to tell you, Dad. Simeon's back in Egypt. They tied him up. They took him away. He's in jail. And Jacob, he's a really old guy right now, and he's probably feeling like he's going to have a heart attack. He's like, uh, anyway, he's not doing good. <laughs> so he says, and then he tells his dad, hold on, dad, have a seat. He said, we need to bring our Benjamin back. And that's the only way he's going to know that we're not spies, but we're being honest. And so he's having a hard time with this, I'm sure. And they emptied, and then dad, it gets worse. When we emptied the sack, our money's back in the sack. So now they're going to think we stole the money and they stole the grain. And you want me to let you take Benjamin back there? And you can imagine this conversation. And it says, and they were all afraid. So now they're afraid again because of their dad. And Jacob, their father, said to him, you have bereaved me of my children. You, you, guys, you guys are killing me here. Joseph is dead, so he thinks. Simeon is dead, might as well be dead. He's down in Egypt in jail. That doesn't go well. And now you want me to give a third son to you? Two of my three favorites, you really want me to do this? And then he says interesting phrases. In Hebrew, it it's kind of translates awkwardly. All this has come against me. He's basically like, everything is against me. Everything, the whole world is against me, is what he's trying to say here. And, and everything has come against who? Me. Who is Jacob thinking about right now? Himself. That's all he's thinking about. He's not talking about the family. You brothers have been through a lot. I'm sure this is hard on you too. It's all about me, 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 which is what it's been Jacob's entire life. Everything has been about him, and his selfishness is still with him. And so it's interesting that here that he's saying that all this is working against me, which is the exact opposite of what Paul teaches us in Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for our good to those who love the Lord. And evidently, Jacob's not loving the Lord right now. Paul says, every bad thing that happens is working for you. Jacob is saying, every bad thing is working against me. You see how it's, it's a matter of perspective? He's not growing through all this. So there, one of my new commentators I've run across is Dr. David Guzik, and he said it best. I want you to track with me here. Watch this chain of events carefully, okay? We're just going to kind of summarize um, Joseph and Jacob's life. And I want you to watch how all these events connect and how God is in total control and how that none of these things, if God was in control, none of these things would have happened the way they did. But these all fall into place perfectly. So if Joseph's family wasn't messed up and weird, his brothers would never have sold him as a slave, right? And if Joseph's brothers never sold him as a slave, then Joseph never would have been in Egypt, right? And if Joseph never went to Egypt, he never would have been sold to Potiphar. And if Joseph was never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife would have never falsely accused him of rape. And if Potiphar's wife never falsely accused Joseph of rape, then Joseph never would have been put in prison. If Joseph was never put in prison, he never would have met the baker and the butler 
of the Pharaoh or the cupbearer. And if Joseph never met the baker and the butler of Pharaoh, he would have never interpreted their dreams. And if Joseph never interpreted their dreams, he would have never interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And if Joseph never interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he never would have become the prime minister of Egypt. And if he never became the prime minister of Egypt, he never would have wisely prepared for the terrible famine that was to come. And if Joseph never wisely prepared for the terrible famine, then his family back in Canaan would have died in the famine. And if Joseph's family back in Canaan died in the famine, then the Messiah, which came from these tribes, could not have come from a dead family. If Jesus the Messiah never came, then we are all dead in our sins and without hope in this world. Do you see how God used all those bad things in Joseph's life to work for our good? Is he not in control of all of history? Everything is under his control. That's why we call God sovereign. He is in total control. So verse 37, when we're talking about it, it's all about the Benjamin. Then Reuben, now think about it. it t- sometimes it says when one of them, but now it, it wants us to know Reuben. So we need to hyperlink back. Wait, who's Reuben? He's a shady character, okay? Remember it was Reuben that when dad was getting old and was away, he slept with his dad's concubine, which is a way of saying, hey, I'm the alpha male now. And he disgraced his whole family by doing that. And also, he's the one that this, he spoke up for Joseph saying, hey, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. But he did too little too late because he went back to the pit and he was already gone. He said, now where am I going to go? So this is the guy who disgraced the family. He's saying to dad, hey, dad, I'll leave my two sons with you. If we don't come back with Simeon, you kill my two sons. He's putting it all on the line there. It's pretty brutal, but in that culture, I guess that's what they did. I don't know. God's not recommending it. This is the description, not a prescription. But Reuben now has had a total change of heart. He's no longer disgracing his father. He's trying to save his father's son. But he said, no, my son's not going with you. He said, you know, for his brother is dead, and now there's only one left. And the brother's like, look at you, like, what? Who are we? <laughs> he says, oh, you got one son left. What? Dad, we're, um, nine of us are standing here. We don't count? No, evidently not. Jo- Jacob is that messed up. He said, man, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow. I'm going to die a very sad, sorrowful death. So let's review here. What does the number 10 represent? God's authority over us, or authority over things, control. What is Jacob losing? He's losing control and authority when his 10 sons go down in Egypt. Okay? Here's the guy who's always tried to be in control, manipulate everything, and now the authority has left him in the form of the number 10 here. The 10 bow before Joseph. That's a picture of Jesus, right? Joseph's a picture of Jesus. Someday every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And we all have, we all have broken the 10 commandments to God's authority over life. We're like, no, God, I'm not listening to you. We've, we've broken the 10 commandments. Our ten fingers and our ten toes represent what we do and where we go and how God is trying to have control over what we do and what we, where we go, and yet we don't want to give that up. We want to sin against God. We're like, no, this is my life. I will do what I want. I will believe what I want to believe. I will have my own truth. I will do my life my way. You're not going to rule over me, God. And so we do what we want with our own ten fingers. We go where we want with our own ten toes. But isn't it ironic that Jesus Christ took his ten fingers 
and had nails put through his hands. And his two feet, his ten toes, he couldn't go anywhere. And he gave up everything for you. You see, this should have been our punishment. This should have been because we're the one that broke God's law. And yet Jesus Christ, who had done nothing wrong, said, Father, I will die in their place. And Jesus Christ gave up total control of his life, of his destinations, and traded places with Gary Milborn on the cross, and traded places with you. You see, the brothers, they did come to finally, you know what, we in truth are guilty. That's what everybody needs to do. Everybody needs to admit, confess that, yes, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I'm not good enough to earn my way to heaven. It's not about keeping Ten Commandments because I've already blown that. It's about receiving Christ as my Lord, as my Savior, and bowing down. Just like the brothers bowed down to Joseph, we all, we all bow down to Christ and say, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Romans chapter 10 says that God showed his love for us and that while we were sinning against him with our hands and with our feet, Christ said, I will die in your place. And what he's asking you to do is wave the white flag of surrender. I, I'm, I'm done being in control of my life. I, I want to give it to the Lord. Romans chapter 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will. that's why when we praise the Lord, what do we do? We raise up these 10 fingers. We, we, we give them out like this. And we say, I give my authority back to you. I've tried to hold on to it. I've tried to do my life my way. I let go. I surrender. You are now the Lord of the boss of my life. And I believe in my heart that you, Father, sent your son to die on the cross, that he was buried on the third day, he rose again. And what does the verse say there? It says, if you will do that, give your life to Christ, receive his forgiveness once and for all, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the eternal punishment that we all deserve. Would you pray with me? Father, what a crazy story. But yet, the gospel is all over it. Lord, we are so guilty of human beings of trying to play the role of God and to take your place on the throne. And yet, Lord, in love, you took the place of man and put yourself on the cross. You lived the life that we never could have lived, and you died the death that we should have died. So, Father, I pray that if there's one here today who's never put their faith in Christ, they've never been saved from their sins, I pray that they would realize that today they could receive this free gift by just simply yielding to you, just throwing up the white flag and surrendering and giving it all to you and accepting what you did on the cross. Lord, we believe that you literally died, you were buried, and you brought yourself back to life, proving that you were God in human flesh. So, Father, I pray that uh, we would live each day a life of gratitude, of thanks, of appreciation for all that you've done. Lord, we can never earn that love. We just simply accept it, and we enjoy it, and we're thankful for it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know more about being a follower of Christ, or maybe you made that decision today, I would love to talk to you about that. This is my number. You can text me or call me. Um, Amanda, would you like to come help me with the question and answer? So if you, um, if you have a question, you can text that in right now. Or you can raise your hand if you'd rather do it that way. Um, all right, there's our first question. Y'all can text in the questions if you want um, while we're answering this one here. Okay. Do dreams come true? Do dreams come true? Um, no, not thankfully not all dreams come true. <laughs> um, 
We've had some really, really weird dreams, haven't we? I was trying, and then you know what's so weird is they say they say you dream all night long. Every time you go into what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement, that you're dreaming and your brain is processing, but you don't remember it. Did you only remember the dreams you wake up during? But have you ever noticed how quickly they go away? It's like it's vivid detail, and then five minutes later, like what, what was that I dreamed? And anyway, I'm trying because I'm right now trying to recall a dream I had the other morning. And I can't even get it at all. But anyway, I know it was really dream. Some of them were really weird, you know, like you're doing the impossible, so obviously those don't come true. But so therefore, I think what's at the heart of the question is not all dreams are like God's revelation to you. He's trying to tell you something, other than maybe you shouldn't have eaten the pepperoni pizza before you went to bed. Maybe that's about all he's trying to tell you. Um, but dreams are a way of your mind kind of healing. You're processing things. Like if you had an argument with someone and you wish you had told them this, this, and this, and then you dream you actually told them to them, told it that, them that. It's your brain kind of like getting that off of, instead of having this built-in desire, like this steam building up, you let out the steam in the dream. Not trying to rhyme on purpose there. So, but God definitely spoke to Joseph and to Daniel more than any of the other two characters in the Bible through dreams. And who can name someone else in the Bible who had a dream? Paul, and then also... Remember who dreamed about the animals? Peter, yeah, good for you. Good for you. All right, cool. Any other questions? Not right now. Not right now? Okay. Let's sort of, sometimes you have like five or six, sometimes you have one. All right. Well, hey, let's stand and uh, let's read this verse of Scripture as God's blessing over us as we go out into the world this week. Read, read with me, join me on verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.